In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving, but there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to episode 14 of the Behind the Claw podcast, a show for fans of the classic traveller RPG. I'm Felbrick Napoleon Herriot, so let's start the show by taking a look in the email vault. I'm hoping... Phew. So, Robert's got in touch to say that he brought a copy of my Decapedia PDF and it's giving him access to this podcast content as text on his iPad. I'm glad that's working out for you, Robert. And thanks for letting me know. Brian has also dropped me a comment about the podcast. He's enjoying the fact that there's still people out there that remember the classic Traveller. You're right, Brian. It is good to know that you're not alone. It's a niche within a niche, but to be honest, it is the best niche. Contributor George has been in touch as well via comments on the blog, with a couple of points on the last episode. He suspects that inhabited systems are likely to only have very small colonies away from the main world in a system, for such things as research or prisons, due to the time and cost of setting them up. He also suggests that if a system had many colonised worlds in it, it's likely that that is the home world of the race. They probably would have colonised all those worlds before they discovered the jump capability. I think he's got a point there. He also passed on a quirk from his own campaign. He had Varg appear in low numbers on most Imperial worlds. His rationale being that as humans and dogs have such a good relationship, that would likely apply to Varg, because as humans we can read dogs' emotions. That might well apply to Varg as well, so human and Varg have an almost instinctual understanding of each other, hence they can interact. And that, George, is a very good point. So thanks to those folks for getting in touch. Let's move on to the first segment. I have no idea, so... Computer, what can you tell me about this place? This is the My Galaxy segment, where I tell you about one of the planets in the Tesseso subsector. A map and planetary UPPs for the Tesseso subsector can be found on the show's website at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Today we're taking a look at the well-named Kezajaxius. Kezajaxius. Yeah, that'll do. The colony on the planet is small, and its history is a little murky. The population of around 500 is very reticent to speak of why the colony was established over 200 years ago, and indeed, many wonder why it still exists today. It's a small, airless, waterless world with no starport and no industrial farming exports. Apart from the small community, the world is in fact rather bland and empty, a hostile wasteland. The majority of the population live in a single area of the planet that might be described as a town, although that name is a little misleading. The inhabitants have avoided the usual practice of sharing a single dome, and instead all live within small individual prefabricated cubes. Each cube is only a matter of metres square and is comfortable for an individual, but not large enough for a family. A child born on Kezajaxios lives with its mother until aged eight, at which point a new cube is fabricated and it becomes independent, although family members will frequently visit 
until the child reaches at least the age of consent. Visitors to the planet will not find a friendly welcome in any of the habitation cubes. The people of Kezajaxius value their peace and their privacy. Although not actively hostile to the few visitors they receive, off-welders find them short, brusque, even to the point of rudeness during all interactions, and this may account for the limited amount of trade that takes place. As an insular society, they can be quite gregarious via audio communication. They maintain an active community-based radio network, across which they can be heard chatting and interacting, just like any other imperial societies and citizens. However, this does not extend to physical interaction and meeting people in person. They're also reluctant to use video communication, as this is considered as invasive as physical meetings. There does not seem to be any shortage of children amongst the population, so they must be copulating at some point in their lifespan. But this is a taboo subject, and visitors are warned to avoid the subject lest they be roughly escorted to the nearest airlock. On arrival on the planet, a trader is advised to introduce themselves on the community network radio and offer details of any items they have for trade. The trade goods should then be left on the surface at a designated point with no guard for about 24 standard hours. The people wish to avoid physical interaction and the face-to-face bartering process is abhorrent to them. Thus, if anyone wishes to buy the goods you offer, they will replace the goods with a cred stick which you should pick up at the end of the designated 24-hour period. No, no, no way. The way I heard it is that he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. And now it's time for another story seed. This is another investigative seed, and it's based around people rather than technology. The party come into contact with Samian Justak, who is in trouble and needs help. Depending on your party, how you get in touch with him will vary. Perhaps he's a rich executive coming to the PCs with a bounty. Or maybe he's a factory manager crying into his beer in a local pub. Whatever method you use, he should be upset and desperate. The story he tells is rather simple. He'd suspected his wife, Diane, was having an affair. One day he returned home and found his wife in a smoochy hug with his brother, Harton. He was furious. There was a shouting match. Blows were swapped. Samian reached into the kitchen drawer where they kept a snub pistol for home defence, a relic of Samian's service in the Navy, and shot his brother. His brother dropped dead to the floor. Angry and upset, Samian fled the house and walked through the park. When he'd calmed down, he returned home and called the police, intending to give himself up. But when the police turned up and he took them through to the kitchen, there was no body and his wife said that no such murder had taken place. The police charged him for wasting their time. His wife has called social services, thinking he needs to be taken in for psychiatric care. The truth behind this situation that needs to be discovered by the players is that Diane and Harton are having an affair, and Harton is not dead or even injured. The confrontation was planned by the pair of them, and she had swapped the bullets in the snub pistol for blanks. They planned to get Samian committed for insanity, at which point she'll take control of his inheritance or business and have a very nice life with his brother, Harton. 
While the players are investigating, the lovers will try to set up events around Samian to try and upset his mental balance. Silly things will be done, such as his car keys being moved into different rooms. Digital documents he's written will be deleted. He'll get replies to communications that he doesn't remember making. Goods and services he never requested will be delivered. And all of these things will have been organised by Diane or Harton in his name. Here are some suggested drop-ins for you, to liven up your scenario. The cops themselves are reluctant to get involved in what they perceive as a social issue. They don't want to waste any more of their time and will actually become aggressive if they're drawn into it. Diane and Harton can try to repeat the whole murder scene, doubling up and really forcing home the issue that this guy is thinking he's doing things that he hasn't done. Samian has a business partner that's in on the scam being run by the lovers. If the PCs start to uncover the plot, then one or more of them might be the victim of an attempted hit and run, or even a shooting. Perhaps Harton will pay a thug to put pressure on the PCs to leave everything well alone. No, sir, you may not dock here. What the hell? I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometres. This is the rules talk segment, where I talk about the rules, basically. Today I thought I'd have a look at starports. What exactly are they? I'll start by telling you how I've always imagined them. A full-on, full-featured starport is made up of two parts. The first part is the ground-based portion, which is very much like a modern airport with a massive expanse of ferrocrete. Huge hangars are there for engineering works, passenger terminals also, the whole nine yards. The other portion is a geostationary space station above the ground portion. It's a massive place, probably with multiple living decks, shopping complexes, eating establishments, docking and maintenance facilities, and of course, a near-constant shuttle surface running people and goods up and down to the surface. Middle-quality starports I've often thought of as having either a dirt-side or a space-side facility, and the low-end ones only having ground-based facilities, so that's what I've always thought. But what's actually in the books? In Book Zero, it simply says, for a starport, think of airport or seaport. It also goes on to say that an A-type starport would be a very high tech level. It might well have a low population and rely indeed on a lot of automation to help out. It also says that in some cases the only population of the system are the starport staff themselves. It also goes on to say that A and B-type starports always have a Travellers Aid Society hostel. And now moving on to book two. It says that starports charge for landing fees. It also adds that A and B types can construct ships. Shuttles are always available at starports for landing. In book three, starports are described as not being subject to local laws. The book also goes on to list some of the facilities that you can find at a reasonable starport, but it doesn't describe what the port itself looks like. Jumping well ahead onto Book 8, Robots, it says they're likely to fill in for humans at the higher tech-level starports, as we saw in Book 0. Interestingly enough, when you go on to Adventure 0, the first one, it does say there are personal lockers for locally embargoed goods. 
I suggest these would be at the exits into local space out of the starport. And frankly, that's about it. Holy cow, Space Batman, we really have no idea what a starport is. The canon, as such, doesn't give you any detail. Ah, damn piece of junk. Who bought this anyway? <clears throat> no, no, don't you dare say it was me. For today's review, I'm having a look at Adventure 10, Safari Ship. This PDF looks like it was a scan of the 1984 original, but some clean-up work has definitely been done. It's searchable, and there are no issues with reading it. This is quite a booklet. The main story of the adventure is that a rich chap needs to discover a beautiful animal and capture it. For this, he needs a crew for his safari ship, and thus enter the PCs at stage left. As an aside, I should mention that this booklet describes an E-type starport as literally being a beacon on a flat bit of rock. This book covers everything you need for the adventure, unlike some of the others that I previously reviewed. It takes you from beginning to end of the mission. The patron needs to get onto a planet, find an interesting and beautiful bug, stick it in the ship, and then get back to a particular place on a deadline. Of course, as it plays out, things won't be that simple. The book lays out all of that for you. The background gives you the motives and hints of NPCs who might want to get in the way. There is tons of detail on the safari ship itself. Operations, floor plans, design details, and typical gear to go in it. The planet where the hunt takes place is detailed with world maps and specialised encounter tables. The subsector map is also included with UPPs for all of the systems around the planet concerned. There is also a section detailing special procedures for carrying out a safari hunt, as opposed to a simple animal encounter, which I thought were rather well done. And then the piece de resistance. A previously undiscovered intelligent race lives on the planet. And boy, are they different to normal things. We're talking hive-a-level different. This isn't your Star Trek wrinkled nose different. It's weird-looking and behaving. Rules are given for interacting with the new race, and establishing some form of communication with them, that does not think, speak or act like humans. It's very well done. I was blown away with what a great resource this book is. For the ship, the world, the aliens, it was all great. This could very easily be the core of a great campaign set almost entirely on this single world. Many traveller players forget that a single world is in fact a world of adventure, and there's enough here to set you off on such a focused campaign. So if you're looking to purchase an adventure, this is well worth looking at. Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, where we take a look at one of the millions of creatures from known space. Today's critter is the Salamount, and was sent in to the podcast by George Quayle. The Salamount is not the official name for this creature, nor the name given to it by those who first discovered it. When human colonists reached the planet Sturchy, they found Droyen had been settled there for some time, and had domesticated a creature they called the Suferm. The humans gave this creature an official Imperial Species reference number 1010373, but the nickname of Salamount was coined by the Solomani colonists 
who saw in them a mixture of salamander and horse traits. The nickname stuck to the point that it is the most common term for this species amongst the general populace. The salamount is an amphibian. Born in the water, they mostly live in the coastal and swampland regions of their world, and their skin requires frequent immersion to stay healthy. Standing about three metres high, salamounts are quadrupeds whose skin comes in pale orange, magenta and violet hues. In the wild, they are pack animals, who mostly consume vegetation and fish, but will occasionally add insects, small amphibians and even their own young to their diet. They are rarely a risk to travellers, with a disturbed pack being far more likely to run away from a sophant that disturbs them than to attack. Salamounts are air breathers, evolved for a higher concentration of oxygen than is Terran standard. While they are capable of surviving within the human standard of 30% oxygen, they're not evolved for nitrogen-heavy air, and their lungs cannot expel non-oxygen gases as effectively. The result is that the otherwise quiet creatures emit a rasping sound with every exhalation of standard air. To the galaxy at large, this noise is as associated with salamounts as the bark is with the dog, even though on their homeworld the creatures rarely make any sound at all. The salamount has two genders, and their mating season occurs once a year, with the various packs splitting into pairs for just under a month. When the male has impregnated the female, she gestates her eggs within her for about a fortnight before spraying them out into the water suspended in a jelly, usually 20 to 30 eggs at a time. This jelly acts as protection for the eggs as they gestate and hatch into salamount tadpoles. The tadpoles live and grow in the water for their first few years, consuming vast quantities of food to power their growth. This food includes their fellow tadpoles, and very few tadpoles of each clutch survive to enter metamorphosis into their adult form. Salamounts are far more likely to be encountered in captivity than in the wild. Their flesh is not digestible by humans, but they can be eaten by Droyen, so there is a trade in their flesh. This is a fringe industry, however, compared to the training of salamounts as riding beasts or beasts of burden. Salamount racing is a popular sport on several worlds, and the largest meets form the highlight of the social calendar amongst Sturgis upper classes. Racecourses are designed to require both land and water movement by the beasts, and riders must be able to control their beasts and also hold their breaths when they reach the submerged sections of the track. Travellers transporting salamounts should ensure they are held in appropriate shipping containers with plentiful supplies of water as well as the necessary foodstuffs. Care should be taken introducing them into the wild on other worlds as without appropriate predators for their young, their tadpoles can quickly clog up the hydrosphere. Have you got that feed ready? Yep, feeding it through now. Got it, thanks. That net feed's got a weird name. What is it? Whale song. The captain likes whale song? It's time to take a look at another website. Today I'm taking a peek at the freelancetraveller.com website. The site is dedicated to the traveller system and has a whole host of goodies that will make you bookmark the link just like I did. Not least is the fact that the site hosts a PDF magazine which has just reached its 64th instalment. I can't praise the content of this magazine enough. Reviews, fiction, adventures, reffing tips, war stories from the table 
alternates and additional rule suggestions, miniatures tips as well. In fact, everything you'd want from a real dyed-in-the-wall traveller magazine. The rest of the site is pretty much dedicated to a cross-linked index of the magazine's content, and some additional bits and pieces are thrown in. I do have one warning for you about the magazine's content, however. It's addictive. This podcast nearly didn't happen because I carried on reading these articles instead. Definitely worth checking out. That's FreelanceTraveller.com My God, sir, they've launched a missile. It's, it's tracking. Have they now? Don't fret, though. I've got something special to handle that. Lancelot, activate my special defensive feature. This special feature is really just a kind of stop the presses moment. If you don't already own all of the classic traveller books on PDF, then stop this podcast right now. Or in about 30 seconds, actually. Open your browser and direct yourself to bundleofholding.com. There you'll find them running an offer for the PDFs of the little black books that constitute the core of Classic Traveller. This is a limited time offer for them, and it's ending around the 9th of July 2015. Seriously, it's a really good bargain. Go there, go now. So I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you're called? The spacer in the corner booth. Don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? the guy on the news vids. Which news vids? The thousands of channels. Crookwatch. Ah, This is the People of Interest segment where I tell you about one of the interesting people in the Imperium, as opposed to all those dull arts. Bayes Himmich is a man whose name has become legend amongst those who have made space travel their career. He was not a heroic leader of men, nor a great doctor bent on saving millions. No, he is simply a survivor. He survived 18 months abandoned in the vacuum. He was an engineering crewman on the freighter Lucky Dips, where he worked for upwards of six years prior to the incident. He was intimately familiar with the ship and its systems, and by all accounts was a treasured member of the crew. The incident referred to was nothing less than the complete destruction of the Lucky Dips. She was attacked while on a long in-system transport haul to a scientific base that was orbiting beyond the system's furthest planetary body, a trip due to take around three weeks. They'd left the last inhabited planet far behind and were passing over a collection of orbiting asteroids when the ship was attacked. At first, the captain of the ship thought the attackers were nothing more than pirates, The system had been plagued by a band of pirates that often settled for being paid in gold rather than taking the ships themselves. The captain therefore made overtures to the intruder, but only when it was too late to escape did he realise the ship was launching missiles. The captain had time to warn his crew and even to make a few manoeuvres, but in the end the missiles hit and blew the lucky dips apart. Bayliss was at his monitoring station in engineering when the ship came apart. He doesn't remember the explosion, but remembers coming round in freefall. His suit was still tethered to the stanchion he'd fixed himself to when the alert was started. He was gently spinning through the void in unison with an airlock. The stanchion he'd attached himself to was close to the airlock, and he found that the entire airlock and the nearby wall that he'd been attached to 
was tumbling towards the asteroids. When he flicked on his suit lights, he found that he was actually surrounded by the debris of the ship, which had been taken apart in large segments. He tried his radio, but got no response. After a few hours, he and the airlock gently collided with a large asteroid. It was this collision that woke him up from his awestruck stupor. He found the airlock was still working on emergency batteries, and started looking around to see if he could find anything else of use. During the next few hours, he found a number of useful items among the debris of the ship, including another vac suit or two, a hand-cranked air recycler, frozen rations, and water. He set up a base inside the airlock's smaller outer postern chamber, and piled stores of anything he could scavenge into the larger main chamber. He spent some weeks living in the postern chamber, which he occasionally pressurised so that he could de-suit and take care of cleanliness. He reports having nothing to do with his time, except to breathe shallow, and worry about where he could get more air from. Yet in the end, he found himself running out of water long before anything else. Bayliss went on a scavenging search through the asteroids and the ship debris, and found a number of smaller asteroids were actually dirty ice rather than rock. He put all of his engineering know-how to work, and was soon able to produce potable water, and was even splitting the water to create more oxygen to supplement his supply. It was 18 months before Bayliss was picked up by a passing supply ship that was repeating the run he had originally been on. His suit radio was picked up only by the luckiest of happenstance, that the channel was being monitored because the ship itself was running an EVA maintenance job. Bayliss's experience have become an evergreen hit when telling spacer stories in starport bars. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. So we've reached the end game once more, despite this incredibly hot weather trying to turn me into a slurry. But as usual, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions or segment items, please get in touch. Email me at behindtheclaw at outlook.com. This podcast is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Its home on the web is at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Music by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I'm your host, Felbrig Napoleon Herriot. Thanks for listening. Prepare for jump.